Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and today I'm excited to have Stefan Batori, who's the co-founder and CEO of Booksy. Uh, Stefan is a is an ardent serial entrepreneur, innovator who's developing curated companies that are now leaders in his home country of Poland. Stefan had uh, developed his latest startup books out of personal frustration on trying to schedule appointments over the phone or via text. Prior to Booksy, uh, Stefan was the founder and CEO of Sensi Soft, a software development company with a focus on classified media. During that time, he created and bootstrapped iTaxi, which disrupted the outdated service industry to transform the way people in Poland uh, hail taxis today. Uh, Stefan is a visionary, but also a strong analytical and dedicated entrepreneur. Uh, and uh, he's an accomplished ultra Marathon who's conquered the Gobi uh, Desert and uh, Books has uh, recently uh, raised around $70 million uh, with a total of $120 million in funding. Uh, welcome to the show, Stephen. Uh, thank you, Rakit. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So, you know, uh, you're very interesting journey because you you lived in Poland and you moved to the uh, US. <laughs> How was life while, while growing up uh, in Poland in the 1970s? Well, uh, that was a strange time because back then Poland was still a communist country. So we had pretty much, you know, empty shelves. There was like shortage of supply. You know, people struggled, you know, uh, doing some basic daily stuff like, you know, raising your kids and, and providing for them and, and, you know, getting anything you would need to, to raise a kid. It was very difficult for my parents. So I raised, you know, watching them. Um, struggle with with uh, with raising us with with providing you know uh, it, it wasn't even about making the money because in communism everybody makes pretty much the same and they make uh, not enough but it was even harder to to buy food to buy you know clothes to buy things like toilet paper so uh, we went through a lot of hardships like everybody in Poland back in these days. And I guess this is something that made me very resilient uh, nowadays. Interesting. And, uh, you know, wh- while you're growing up, uh, how did, uh, d- did you always believe that you could get into entrepreneurship and startups and what got you more involved uh, when you were, uh, you know, living in Poland? Uh, back in 1989, when Poland overthrew communism, and uh, we embraced democracy and capitalism. My parents, they started a small business. First, they launched uh, a grocery store. Then they launched a wholesale business. And, and uh, as the next step, they started like a small baby cloth factory. So I've you know, looked up to them. Uh, my brother and I and my sister, we were all helping them running their business, doing some day-to-day operations. Basically, at some point, we were you know, going to school and after school working in those businesses. Uh, and back then, I, I wasn't even thinking about myself as, as a future entrepreneur, but I, like, you know, it became part of my life. It became part of my daily routine. And then I started experimenting with my own ideas, like, you know, I bought a fish tank and it was difficult to get fishes. So, you know, I started trading with my friends and then I started breeding um, fish. And then I realized like, wow, maybe I could make, you know, a lot of money uh, selling, selling the fish. And then I bought a few more <laughs> tanks 
uh, started breeding them, but then, you know, I realized how difficult it was to keep the water temperature correct, you know, to, 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 uh, feed the fish because like we, even though, you know, it was just the beginning of capitalism, we still lacked a lot of, you know, tools and resources, uh, people had in the West. So, uh, you know, my, my parents and my family, they were looking at me like I was crazy because I said, I'm going to make millions breeding and selling fish. And, you know, I never made any money with that. Actually, I lost a, a lot of money buying all the equipment and tanks and fish. Then I had a few other ideas and they were always looking at me like, you know, I'm, I'm this crazy kid, you know, trying to do crazy things that never work out. So uh, after a couple of years of being like that, you know, I got talked into being a scientist. Like everybody in my family knew I was like good with math and, and physics and, and computer science. So they said like, you know, instead of like trying your crazy ideas, why don't you focus on, on science? And I said, okay, that, that makes sense. So I, I was looking, you know, to have career in um in science and you know going through high school uh even going to college like that was my mindset like I, I didn't really think about being an entrepreneur anymore i thought i was like too crazy to do that okay. uh but in 1999 i met a few friends we were all working um at the startup that was like one of the first uh internet companies in poland uh i guess the easiest way to frame it, it was like clone of Yahoo back then. And we didn't like the way the company was managed. We didn't like, you know, the way uh, the direction the company was taking. And we thought, uh, you know, we would leave the company and start our own business. So that's how I came back on the entrepreneurial path. And in January 2000, we started EO Networks, which was my very first business. And it was a software development house. However, I wasn't meant to run it. There were three guys that were supposed to run the business. Um, and I was the CTO and, and four, four other friends were uh, software developers. So I was leading, you know, the tech team. But after two or three months, the three guys that were supposed to run the business, they decided to quit it uh, because the uh, dot-com bubble burst and uh, they didn't see future in, in, you know, selling internet services and, and making software, internet software. So they decided to leave and left, you know, five of us poor IT guys that didn't know anything about the business. I didn't know anything about sales, about marketing, about running a company, about paying taxes, about hiring people. Like I knew nothing. I just, you know, I just knew how to, how to write code, how to do software, how to create platforms. But the other four guys just looked up to me and they said, hey, Stefan, why don't you lead us? Why don't you become uh, the CEO? And that's how I, you know, how I started learning how to run business and um, how, to, um, um, how to do everything from scratch. So the first couple of years were really tough really hard uh we didn't make any money like in fact we we lost a um, couple hundred thousand in the first couple of years we should have filed bankruptcy um but uh i didn't want to leave people you know behind uh with with debts and i unpaid bills so i decided decided to work um as hard as possible to pay off all the debts and then close the company
But after we paid off all the debts, I realized, hey, maybe there is something, you know, um, into in in it, and maybe I should just continue. And then the company started growing really fast, and Deloitte put us on their list of the top 50 fastest growing companies and in Central and Eastern Europe for seven consecutive years. Like we maintained over 100% growth year over year for the 12 years I, I ran the company. Wow, I think, I think that's, a, that's a great story. And, uh, you know, you started young as an as an entrepreneur, and uh, you know there's a lot of talk uh, across ecosystems that mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, VCs would back older founders uh, or VCs would back younger founders like Mark Zuckerberg and all. But do you think it really matters if you start young? Uh, you you have you know Y Combinator saying that uh, the ideal age to start is around 23, 24, mm-hmm. but uh, it's not. It's what are your thoughts? When should should a founder actually get into entrepreneurship? Uh, I guess the sooner the better because um, like you have nothing to lose when you are young, fresh out of college, you have no family, you know, no, no mortgage. It's just easier to take risk, riskier decisions. So uh, it was serendipity now when I look at that, but I think, you know, I, I, I was blessed uh, that I started my first company at, I guess, uh, 22 back then. And, uh, you know, I could, you know, make all those mistakes and take all the risks because like, you know, I, I didn't have to provide for, for a family. I didn't have to take care of anybody. I didn't have to worry uh, that if I fail, then, you know, somebody is going to get, uh, you know, uh, maybe not hurt literally, but like, you know, that my kids wouldn't get proper education or, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to put foot on the table. So, I, I think, you know, the younger you are, the less uh, you have to lose. But on the flip side, the one thing that I wish I had done is maybe worked for a bigger company before I started my own company. So I could see, you know, how those bigger companies are run, how you manage uh, a bigger team, how you implement processes, because this is something I've been missing for all these years, because like, Anything I did was bigger than than I did it a year ago or six six months ago, and I had to learn it the hard way. I had to like you know figure it out uh, literally from scratch because I had like I had no role models. I had you know uh, uh, nobody I could look up to. So so maybe working for a couple of years for a bigger company, maybe uh, you know getting experience and and um and and you know doing something in a big you know in an environment that has already been successful could have taught me maybe uh and prepared me for running my own company better i don't know that's just my speculations but uh that's the only thing i maybe not regret but sometimes i think like maybe i i, I should have done that before i started my own company yeah, no, that's a very interesting insight. You know, work for a, for a big company and and start as early as you can. Mm-hmm. And and you know, how did you get your start in Booksy? What what was the was it a personal pain problem that you were trying to solve? Yeah, that was my very own problem. I at that time I was trying to lose weight, and okay. I got into running, and then I loved it so much. I I I started running uh, marathons and ultra marathons, and I was preparing for one of those races. 
Uh, it's called Marathon de Sable, and it's considered the toughest foot race on Earth. Six back-to-back marathons across Sahara Desert in self-sufficiency formula. So you have to carry a backpack with all the food and supplies. You need to survive a week in, um, in the desert. I was ramping up my mileage and started having aches and pains in my legs. And I had to see my physiotherapist. And um, I was always busy uh, in meetings and he was always busy giving somebody a massage. So when he was working with his hands, he couldn't take my calls. And when he tried to return my calls, I was busy in a meeting you know, with my uh, phone on mute, uh, put away. And I didn't see him calling me back. So we just kept going back and forth for a couple of days, sometimes even a few days before I was able to get in and schedule that appointment. So I started thinking how to, you know, uh, improve the process and take the hassle out of that process, started texting him. But it wasn't that much uh, better because, you know, when I texted him, he didn't see the text for a couple of hours. Then he texted me back. I didn't see the text for a couple of hours and let's say he, he replied, hey, you can get in at 4 p.m. But I read the text at 3.30. So I just jumped into my car and, you know, took off to, to, to get to him. And I said, I'm on my way. And then, you know, at five to four, just as I was parking, he texted me like, sorry, somebody else had slid in before you confirmed. <laughs> so, you know, that, frust- that, that just frustrated me. And I, you know, I started thinking, uh, what would be the best way to improve that and uh, discuss with my partner, Conrad, and he said, like, we need to build software for this guy. Um, uh, but, you know, he was just a solo entrepreneur. He didn't, he couldn't afford to pay for um, uh, custom software built just for him. So then we started thinking, like, maybe we should, like, you know, build a platform and, and you know, uh, sell, it, sell it as a subscription to all those individuals who work with their hands. So we started digging into it and we realized that, you know, hair and beauty and wellness, like these all verticals, they have one thing in common. People work with their hands and when they work with their hands, whether it's, you know, cutting somebody's hair or coloring it or painting nails or giving somebody a massage or doing their brows and lashes, when they work with their hands, they are not supposed to take phone calls. They are not supposed to reply to text messages because they need to focus on that client sitting in their chair. So uh, we realized that this is a huge undigitalized vertical. And that's, you know, that's a great opportunity to tap into. And we decided to launch Boxy. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. That's a great story. And, uh, you know, uh, just to just to follow up on that, what is the business model for, for Booksy and how do you look at acquisitions of you know, salons and barbershops uh, on your own platform? So the business, business model is pretty straightforward. We charge them flat monthly fee, that subscription. Uh, on average, it's $30 per month because we okay. operate in seven different geographies with US being the biggest and the fastest growing market for us. And it's roughly 50% of our business and then six international markets, which obviously include Poland, where we are from, but also the UK, Spain, 
uh, Brazil, Mexico, and South Africa. So those different markets, they have different price points. So on average, we charge uh, businesses $30 per month. Um, and, and that's it. On top of that, we are now uh, building other revenue streams like lead generation, uh, aka marketplace, uh, payment processing. Uh, there is a couple more we are now thinking about, but the, the bread and butter for us is subscriptions. Got it. And uh, you know what? What was some of the hardest elements of onboarding the the first few uh, salons and 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 you know and the barber shops uh, when you're trying to build it? Um, the toughest part was that you know before Booksy existed, there were hardly any other platforms that uh, offered online scheduling because even if there were any, like they had not grown. Uh, big enough to educate the market and to make it a standard. So five, six years ago, when we were starting, the most common objection we would hear from salon owners, it was like, my, like I prefer to have a personal touch with my clients. Like I prefer to speak with my clients. My clients prefer to speak with me. My clients are not going to use it. Like my clients are too old. They don't use apps. My clients want to, you know, want to keep that personal relationship. So nobody's going to book with me online. You know, they, they said like, you know, uh, they need to adjust their time based on personal preference. Somebody has longer hair, somebody has shorter hair, somebody, you know, needs a uh, 60 minute massage, somebody else needs 90 minutes. So they had, you know, a ton of objections. So the first couple of years were really tough because we had to prove that clients really wanted to book online, that clients, uh, they want that, you know, personal touch and experience when they are sitting in the chair. This is when they want undivided attention. Um, and, you know, after, you know, the first couple of years, I, I guess we had enough traction and enough salons using Booksy and enough consumers using Booksy that the word of mouth started, you know, spreading on both sides. And then salon owners started looking at those that, that were using Booksy. They were successful with it. Their business grew way faster than those that hadn't used Booksy. And they started realizing that they are missing um, something. And, and, you know, they started adopting Booksy. And since then, we started growing super fast. Uh, it's it's interesting that you know you 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 if I'm not wrong you started in Poland and then you moved on to other marketplaces. Uh, it's good that you asked that because the first country, the first market that we launched was the US. Poland was actually the second market. We translated the app into Polish and launched Poland as the second market. There is that saying that Poland has that curse of a 40 million country because there is a lot of startups that start in Poland and they never get out of Poland because it's a market that's big enough to be successful. And like, once you get tied up, tied up with this market and it like becomes, you know, uh, it, it, when it's big enough and it's hundred percent of your business, then starting in a new market where you have to go through different struggles and hardships is always uh, difficult because then you, 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 you need to take care of your biggest market, which is Poland. And then launching new markets is always way more difficult. So Conrad and I decided to launch in the US. We had thought, you know, it was the, uh, the most competitive market in the world. It was also the biggest market in the world. 
And we assumed that, you know, if we can succeed, if we succeed in the US, we can succeed anywhere else in the world. So that was our reasoning behind going uh, into the US first in 2014. And then in 2015, we launched in Poland. Oh, that's that's so interesting because uh, usually, you know, people say that you should uh, be a market leader in the in a maybe a smaller niche and capture it. But I liked how you went to US because it's it's a much bigger bigger market. Would you advise it for to or to others also? Like uh, lot, there are a lot of Indian and Chinese companies uh, who dominate the 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 local market, but they're not able to dominate, say, the US and European markets where the lifetime value of a customer could be much higher. Uh, I don't know if I would give it as a general advice, but in our case, that was definitely a good move because if we had focused on Poland first, then we would miss something that is very unique about the US market because US market, US market is built way differently than all of our international markets. So in this space, uh, nearly 70 people work as independent contractors they just rent chairs and only 30% of people work as W2 employees. And in Poland, in the UK, in Spain, uh, it's the other way around. Vast majority of people work as employees. So in all those, in all all those other markets, we need to deal with salon owners and salon managers. And in the U S we go after independent contractors, which is, more difficult and easier at the same time. Uh, it's easier because the decision-making process is shorter. It's more difficult because these are smaller businesses with smaller tickets. Uh, so you, you, you need to be very smart and very cash efficient when acquiring them. But once you figure out how to acquire those independent contractors, then acquisition of, of, of larger salons is actually way easier because you can still do it, you know, much cheaper than any of your competitors. And then on those bigger salons monetize uh, much better because they are willing to pay uh, higher tickets. So, you know, in our case, it worked. I don't know if that was, I mean, that was definitely serendipity, but I don't know if that's like a general advice I would give to everybody. So if we had started in Poland and built software for large salons and then focus and build a process to acquire those larger salons, then we would definitely not be as successful in the US as we are today. Got it. And uh, Stefan, uh, uh, this beauty tech uh, industry, which you uh, had looked at, it was not digitized, but you you had, mm-hmm. you, were, um, you both of you Europeans who went mm-hmm. to US and captured mm-hmm. it, and you were able to beat other mm-hmm you know, hyper-funded startups were trying to solve the same problem. Uh, how, well, why do you think, you know, you were successful in, in solving this problem? I guess there is two points to that. Um, the first one is that uh, we didn't really know anything about the U.S. market. So we spent a lot of time trying to understand that. And uh, that's uh, when we realized that, you know, the market, this market is very much different than all the other markets and that we need to focus on independent contractors. And most of our U.S. competitors, they are going after salons, which is just, you know, a fraction of that market. So I think, you know, they just made an assumption, maybe based on how they operated, you know, in other companies or in other verticals. And they just went after businesses and we are going after 
well, really consumers, because those independent contractors, they behave very much like consumers. So that's, that's, that's the first big difference between us and most of our competitors. The second difference is that uh, there is a very high loyalty in this space because up to 80% of appointments come from repeat clients. And uh, all of our competitors who try to build market bases in this space, they failed because they assumed that the blueprint that worked for Ubers and Airbnbs and Ebays of this world would work for this vertical and it simply doesn't. So uh, I guess, you know, because we were new to the market, we were more open-minded and and humble and we knew that we didn't know anything about the market and we took our time to understand it. And I guess everybody else, they just took shortcuts and they tried to replicate models that worked, you know, for other verticals or worked for them in their past jobs. And I think, you know, this is what, you know, made this vertical uh, a graveyard full of companies that tried to build marketplace for, a, for the beauty and, and they failed. I think you said it beautifully that you were humble and you you wanted to solve the problem and uh, you really deep dive into it. And, uh, you know, I wanted to understand uh, f- uh, for B2B and B2C marketplace founders, uh, you know, how do you drive supply and demand for marketplaces? And, uh, you know, what should come first? Uh, should it be supply or demand? Uh, I've seen both uh, approaches successful. I think that that depends on uh, on the vertical, and I think this is you know this is uh, this is homework everybody needs to do on their own, and this is why uh, we are successful in the U.S. and uh, a, lo- a lot of marketplaces were not because they just took a blueprint or an advice from somebody like oh you should focus on demand first, and then they failed you know uh, capturing uh, the supply or the other way around. So. I don't think that like there is um uh, there is like one uh one rule that everybody should follow. I think that's that's different, that depends on the vertical, that also depends on go-to-market strategy. So my advice is basically to, to do the homework and to understand what your market is like, how it works, how it behaves, and um uh then you will understand and realize what is more critical for you. Got it. And- uh, you know, last uh, 10 years, there have been a lot of micro-influencers and mm-hmm. I got to put in like Kardashians have also brought in mm-hmm. a lot of change in the industry. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, influencers will bring in a lot more change on how consumers are mm-hmm. supposed to, you know, look at beauty industry? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. We are seeing that big time. And one of the reasons that, you know, the salon market in the US is uh, struggling and more and more hairstylists and barbers and nail techs are going independent is the rise of Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. Um, Because what salons really do for them is that, you know, they provide them clients and they take care of scheduling and of of the admin part. So with with platforms like Instagram, they can advertise, you know, they they can take pictures of their work, they can advertise it to their clients and, you know, people just browse uh, through pictures on Instagram and different hashtags like Nails Miami, Nails Atlanta, Nails New York. And if they like it, then they check out who that nail stylist is and they try to book with them. So there is a lot of influencers who are also, you know, um, contributing to that trend. Um, and more and more 
stylists are going independent and this is how they are acquiring clients through social media, through influencers, and a lot of them become influencers on their own. I mean, that, that, that was something that blew my mind. Obviously, US is a huge market, but when a, a hairstylist or a barber or a nail tech has half a million followers or a million followers, that shows you how powerful social media are and how they also become influencers. So it's not only the Kardashians, but it's like, you know, a lot of amazing artists who work in this industry, they also became influencers and people don't even realize that. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think micro-influencers and influencers are, are going to change the industry more. And, uh, and do you think AI and IoT will also change the beauty industry more going forward? Um, I don't know if they are going to change, but they are definitely go, gonna be, uh, going to be like, you know, an addition. Uh, like we are already implementing NI to help predict booking patterns and to make it easier. So we are now working on, on the next generation of uh, uh, booksy for salons and salon management. And this year we'll also start working on the next generation uh, version of our customer facing app. So we are going to predict patterns and remind consumers like, hey, you haven't got a haircut in X weeks or like, hey, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the color that you got, like, you know, probably you, like you should refresh it. Like you should get, you know, um, you should get it redone. So based on uh, different factors, because like different people with different hair textures, with different things that, you know, they, they had done with like different stylists they went to like everybody, like it's very unique on individual basis, but we are working on, on uh, a predictive uh, analytics and, and I, I wouldn't even call it AI. In our case, it's just big data and predictive analytics, maybe with a you know, touch of AI um, to you know, predict when is the best time for people to schedule, to check their stylist availability and to propose them a date and time for that. So they, they don't need to spend time thinking about that. So these are those small bits and pieces we are working on. I think, you know, as, uh, um, as you know, AI and IoT progresses, there will be more use cases and, and we'll definitely be looking how to apply it to Booksy and how to leverage it and to help the beauty industry. To have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Yeah, I think it needs to be seen, you know, how how, how uh, it, it works out in future. And, you know, what what are your thoughts on dynamic pricing for, for marketplaces? Uh, especially if you look at Uber mm-hmm. and they have the dynamic mm-hmm. pricing, which consumers did not always like. But but what are your thoughts? Should, should dynamic pricing be there for marketplaces? I definitely believe it should be there. And that's something we are working on right now as well. However, um, we need to be cautious. As you said, consumers don't like it in many cases. So there need to be some kind of uh, guardrails guard, guard implemented, you know, capping mechanism. So 
what we are working on, on right now is to capture the right balance between consumers and service providers to make both happy to you know, maximize revenue for service providers, but at the same time, not to exploit consumers who are in need of getting their hair done or, or nails done. So um, th this is definitely something that, you know, many other industries have already adapted it. Like when we book airfare, we don't even think about that. Okay. We don't even question it. Like why somebody bought a ticket a few days ago and it was like half the price I'm paying right now. Like, it's a market standard. And I think it's going to become a market standard in many other industries. The question is how to do it um, in a smart way that like, doesn't bother people and is perceived you know, as, as a good practice. Got it. And, uh, you know, I believe COVID had been uh, difficult for beauty industry, especially mm -hmm. hair saloons and nail mm -hmm. uh, saloons had, had to be shut down across the world. Uh, how did how did Booksy deal with uh, COVID and uh, how are you helping our, uh, you know, saloons and barbershops now? Uh, so as soon as, you know, markets went into the first wave of lockdowns uh, in March and April last year, we developed a number of features to help them. So we introduced um, virtual consultations uh, so people could still schedule appointments with them and, and um, connect with their stylists via Zoom. So, so we, we implemented integration with Zoom because what, like, when we typically think about the beauty industry, we think that it's all about you know, making us look pretty, but uh, it's also like our barbers and stylists, they are often our, like, therapists it's also about the energy exchange like we go there and you know they know everything about our lives about our families about our jobs because like we spend there you know uh 30 40 minutes maybe an hour sometimes even a couple of hours every few weeks and after years they really they, they get to know us really well so it's not only about you know getting our hair done but it's also about the energy exchange and, you know, people staying at home, they felt isolated, they felt lonely. So enabling both consumers and stylists to schedule those virtual consultations that partly address that problem, that help stylists to make some money, that help clients to, you know, take care of themselves. And it helped both sides to stay connected to uh, nourish uh, those relationships. We also implemented uh, vouchers and donations. So clients could support their stylists because everybody knows, or back then everybody knew that sooner or later those lockdowns would be lifted. And most clients wanted their stylists to stay in the business. They didn't want them to go bankrupt. So a lot of people supported them. And it was amazing to see, you know, how much support stylists got from their existing clients. Uh, we also introduced uh, safety and healthy rules. So, once markets started reopening, stylists could um, fill in some details and we would show their clients how they are taking care of them and themselves and how they are creating a uh, safe and healthy environment for people to come in. So, so we developed uh, like a dozen features like that to help the stylists weather the storm and then uh, uh, create a safe and healthy environment for their clients to come in because COVID is still around. And even though a lot of markets are now acting like it's, nothing has happened, there is still a group of clients and we are seeing that 20 to 30% of consumers 
have not returned yet. Uh, maybe it's because they are waiting to get vaccinated. Maybe because they lost their jobs and they don't have money. Maybe it's something else, but there is still a lot of people that are afraid to uh, sit in a chair and get their hair or nails done. And, and you know, uh, uh, Stephen, congratulations on on raising you know seventy million dollars. Uh, uh, you've also uh, are you looking to expand into other other countries, especially uh, you know Southeast Asia and you know Latin market, or you want to be uh, double down on the markets you currently are in? We are definitely definitely doubling down on our existing markets, especially here in the US. I think we'll expand to Southeast Asia and Latin America at some point um, and across Europe, but it's too early to do that. To, uh, we believe that this is a winner-takes-all dynamics and we want to be the one that wins it. So we are already the most downloaded and the most used uh, scheduling app in the US, in the UK, in Brazil, in Spain, in Poland and South Africa. And we just don't want to lose that uh, position. and. Um, just you know continue the growth until we really win uh, all of these markets interesting and uh, you know i wanted to understand how do you approach a decision making frameworks and um, how do you what is the right way to respond when you know decisions don't go as you as you mm-hmm. plan especially when it was would have happened in 2020 uh, what what is your decision making framework i guess the most important thing is to be honest with yourself and with the team so, um, you know, we, and, and, and be transparent uh, because this creates an environment where, like, you know, you can really rely on your team and you can get honest feedback from them when they are not afraid to, to give you that feedback and when they know that that feedback is heard. So this is what we've been trying to build uh, within Booksy for years, and it definitely paid off in 2020. Because if it wasn't the team that was very loyal, very engaged, very motivated, like we wouldn't have made it, we wouldn't be so successful. So building that culture and building uh, a strong team um, prior to the pandemic, it really helped us to, uh, to weather the storm and, uh, you know, to make pivots and to make quick changes because the, the whole team trusted the leadership team. And then the leadership team felt like we are getting good feedback from our teams, from our markets, and we can trust that feedback. So it, bur- it works both ways. All right. And uh, so I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Uh, the favorite one is uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. And I have already read it twice. And I wish I, I read it, you know, in... Uh, 2000, when I was starting my first company, I, I read it definitely too late. And I think I'm going to read it for the third time uh, in the next few weeks. But every time I read it, like, well, every time I read it twice, but like, you know, I, I, I get something else out of that book. Like, like, oh, how come I missed that? Like, oh, I forgot you wrote about that. So it, it's a great book. Highly recommend it. No, absolutely. I think this is one of the most recommended books from, from all the guests on the, on the board. And, uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you started working on Booksy, what is the one thing you would have done differently or, or focused on just one thing? Uh, the one thing that I would have done differently is I would seek out for help and ask people uh, sooner than later and more frequently. You know, being raised in Poland in a communist country, uh, 
it's, you know, I was brainwired that like, you know, I have to figure everything on my own, like that there is nobody that would help you, that there is, there was no pay it forward culture. Like, you know, uh, that there was nobody you can rely on, you know, uh, except of your like family and, and close friends. But like business wise, everybody just, you know, kept their knowledge to themselves. Like nobody really wanted to share it. And uh, this is what I love about the startup culture and about the US. And I like if I had adopted that sooner, I think we would have done just less mistakes. Right. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Uh, I hate Zoom, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I just started embracing Slack. Uh, we had not been using it uh, from the very beginning. We actually started using Slack uh, around 12 months ago. So uh, I'm like, I'm still an old school guy, and I think I prefer email than Slack. But I'm learning and you know seeing more and more benefits of using Slack. Correct. And uh, so, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Booksy? Um, well, you can easily reach out to me, uh, emailing me at Stefan, S-T-E-F-A-N at booksy.com. Um, and you can go to our website, booksy.com and hope you will find everything you need on there. Got it. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Stefan, I really enjoyed my conversation with you and, uh, you know, best wishes for, uh, for, for the future endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rakit. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.